This is Jamie Akers, lutenist, guitarist and musician on GMI. Hello and welcome to another podcast, number 38, from GMI, the Guitar and Music Institute. My name is Jed Brocky, and today I'm talking with Jamie Akers, someone I knew many, many years ago when he was just a snip of a lad and he's now gone on to be an extremely successful early music instrumentalist or even multi-instrumentalist. Jamie plays early 19th century guitars, lutes, he's got a wide selection of lutes, and a theorbo. I hope I've said that correctly. If you don't know what a theorbo is, then listen to this podcast, you'll find out all about it. It's a huge instrument. And if you come over to the Guitar Music Institute website, that's www.guitarmusicinstitute.com, you'll see pictures of Jamie playing it there. you really got to see this instrument. It is absolutely huge, about six feet, over two metres in length. And you can also watch Jamie play various instruments in the videos within this podcast. If this is your first visit to the GMI podcast, then welcome. We've got uh, plenty of other podcasts for you to listen to. There's quite a a range building up now about everything about guitar and music. Uh, I'd encourage you to go and look at some of those earlier episodes. I'm sure you'll find something that you find of interest. Just by listening to this podcast, you can get 15% off any of the GMI products at the gmiguitarshop.com when you've purchased or when you've gone to the cart there's a code you can put in GMI all capitals GMI and then the number 01 GMI 01 and you'll get 15% off coming up is my interview with early music multi-instrumentalist Jamie Akers Jamie, thanks so much for being part of the show. You're the first time I've uh, ever had someone who's played early music, instruments and early music. Now, I know you're going to wrap me over the knuckles for that because I'm sure that is probably wrong. Why don't you just explain to the listeners a little about what you do, first of all, and then we'll go back into maybe your history. Sure. So professionally, what I generally play is music written... Period music, we'd call it. So written before, I don't know. I mean, it keeps getting later and later what I do, basically. But to begin with, I played a lot of Renaissance music, Baroque music on instruments of the period. So like lutes and Baroque guitars, Renaissance guitars. And then I've kind of moved forward over the years. So now I've been looking more into the 19th century music, like less well-known music. Um, of the 19th century. So not your bog standard kind of Sor Giuliani classical guitar stuff, but more obscure kind of composers that you might not have heard of, but who wrote good music, you know, that's sort of fallen by the wayside. So it's a twofold thing I do, really. One is playing period instruments. The other is exploring forgotten and unknown repertoire for those instruments. And then applying an aesthetic based around the idea of interpreting the music as it would have been at the time. So, you know, you read the Sor's guitar method and you study how he played and his actual technique rather than having a way of playing and then just applying that to the music itself. So it's a a kind of an aesthetic thing that can be applied to any music. I mean, you could apply the idea. In a way, I feel a certain sort of affinity with, say, Eric Clapton when he plays Freddie King Blues. You know, he does a similar sort of thing. You know, he explores the style, he digs into it. And if you listen to him, he does a great, not pastiche exactly, but, you know, he can play in the style of Freddie King, in the style of B.B. King, you know. And it's a little like that what 
I do, but from a classical perspective with notated music rather than, you know, recorded music. Now, the instruments themselves, uh, I was looking at some of the instruments you play. Perhaps you'd like to describe some. Some of them look massive and just from a completely... uh, practical point of view it must be a nightmare getting in and out of taxis with that lot or maybe playing abroad could you maybe tell us about and describe some of the instruments you play sure so the one you're probably most likely referring to i think is the theorbo exactly. which is kind of um yeah it's an evolution of the lute so it's one of the lute family um but what happened was a certain point in history they got they added an extra set of strings so it's like a two-headed creature two-headed beast and it's got one set of strings like a lute or guitar that you play normally and then a longer set of strings which is tuned to a scale like a harp it's like a harp stuck to a lute right so so what what is the tuning of that instrument the tuning of the bass strings is literally a scale g to g and then the fretted strings much like it's a usual force with a third like guitar or lute it has a slight eccentricity in that the tuning is re-entrant we call it you know like a banjo or a ukulele in that the top two strings are actually tuned an octave lower than they should be and that's purely physics because um the length of the instrument to get a string of the right pitch it would be so thin that it would be utterly impossible so it's basically physics means you have to knock those two strings down an octave, which limits your range, but it creates a unique kind of sound. Because when you play a chord, you've got lots of unisons rather than, you know, different notes. So it creates a sound, unique sound with it. Does that take a while to get used to with strings being above, but actually being lower or higher or whatever? Of course, yeah. I mean, yeah. in a way, if you don't take it into account, if you just play normally, you get quite a nice effect because then you have a chord and you play the chord and you spread the chord and it kind of jumps around the pitch, you know, so you get a nice kind of effect. Um, but yeah, you have to always think that the third string is the highest, highest pitch string. So generally, if you're playing a solo piece, the melodies on the third and fourth strings <laughs> and then the first and second strings are kind of filling in, you know, so you do have a kind of, but in a way, technically, if you think of your right hand position on a guitar, if you're playing like classical guitar stuff what, with the tune on the top string, you end up with the A finger, you know, the ring finger playing the tune, which is the weakest finger. But if you do it on the theorbo with the third string, you end up with your index finger playing the tune, which is a bit stronger. So it has a kind of practical usefulness as well. You say that the top two strings are an octave... Octave lower than, than you'd expect, yeah. So they're just they're just tuned to E and A, right? But they're tuned an octave lower than the third, the third string. That instrument, if it was actually tuned now with today's strings, would yeah, it be yeah. possible to actually tune it differently and not that you would want to but could. you'd want to uh, i think you could get the second string up to pitch i think the top string i'm not sure even then you could get it up to th- at the length of the instrument because literally it'd be an a like the fifth fret on the guitar right like the a440 basically that would be the string that'd be the pitch but you'd have to have the string length of about you know 80 centimeters which, you know, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> that's going to be. Yeah, how long does it take to build one of these? I, I take it there's not a lot of Theorbos going around, kicking around. There's a few, yeah. I mean, I bought mine secondhand when I was a student. Um, but usually you have to have them made to order. There's a few people around making them, maybe half a dozen local to me in sort of, you know, South England. I don't know, you know, throughout Europe, there's a few people churning them out. They take a few months, obviously, to make. Um, 
because there's a lot to it, you know, there's different, you know, like building a guitar, obviously. I mean, it's like building any instrument. There's a lot to do. We won't talk about your other instruments, but in terms of repertoire for that specific instrument, uh, yeah. how much has actually been written for it? And are, do you, I, I know I'm going to go off in tangents here, but do you ever write new material for these instruments? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of historical music because of the limitations of this instrument, you know, because of the strange tuning and the, you know, the physical limitations. It's such a big thing to play. There's not a huge solo repertoire. There's, I don't know, maybe a couple of hundred pieces from the 17th century. Composers like Robert de Vizet, it's quite well known, um, Capsberger, Piccinini, so Italians and French mostly. In terms of contemporary music, there's, yeah, people have been writing for it. I mean, James McMillan did a piece recently. A guy called Steve Goss has just written a concerto for it. Wow. So um, that's be, just... Will you be playing that? I don't think so, no. It's, it's, uh, we'll it's draw our own conclusions about what you're saying there. <laughs> well, the conclusion is, to be honest, I mean, I spread myself reasonably thin in terms of all the instruments I play, but I've, in terms of solo playing, I tend to focus on certain things, and Theor was not one of the ones I've focused on as a solo instrument. I played it a lot in orchestras and ensembles and stuff as an accompanying instrument but i've never really taken to the solo music for it just because there's not that much of it and i'm not sure it all kind of rewards the effort if you know what i mean you've got to make it because it's a lot of lot to learn you know and just you've describe got to... to the listeners how big this instrument is jamie well, it's taller than, I'm for my 5 feet 10, and it dwarfs me. It's about five inches taller than me. Uh, in its case, it's just, uh, what was it, about 198 centimetres is the case. So nearly two metres tall. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty long. I mean, it's not bulky. It's just long, you know, and the longest strings you don't actually fret. So it's not like I'm having to stretch my arm a mile, you know, it's you only fret. The fretted strings have an, another head, another which is shorter. So you play them, you know, they're, so they're not that long. They're they're sort of 87, 80, between 87 and centimeters and a meter in terms of, you know, the scale length of the shorter strings. So it's yeah, it's pretty fiendish to logistically and you how know? thick are the strings are you going and asking for nines <laughs> if only um, if only you could get a set of strings that easily um, the strings aren't that high tension to be honest because if you think of the instrument the pitch of it is almost as low it goes almost as low as a double bass right the lowest pitch string on the Theorvo is a G which is a third above the low E of the bass right but the body size of it comparatively is tiny so the body of it is not that much bigger than your standard lute so in terms of the tension it can take is much less than you know the actual physical construction of it is it can't take and there's 14 strings so if you imagine all the sort of physics you have to do to work out the tensions the strings are quite low tension so um they're not kind of massively thick you know they're kind of I'm kind of the, you know, the thickest one, the lowest one, you know, you're looking at a couple of millimetres thick, you know, but it's not like, you not like a double bass where it's, you know, really huge. And how would you describe the sound of the instrument? Good question. Well, it's, it, it's, like I say, it's a bit like a cross between a harp and a lute. You know, so you get that sonority of the harp with the strings blending into each other. But then you've got the slightly, um, the, how do you describe it? That sort of nasal quality that the lute has, you know, that slightly, 
you know, it's very evocative sound. So it, it, that's basically, to me, how it sounds. Well, maybe that would be a good way to segue into your other instruments. Do you want to tell? Sure. And, and any peculiar instruments you have other than that one, which is not peculiar, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Um, well, yeah, I mean, in addition to that, I, I was saying earlier about sort of the things I've concentrated on are basically Renaissance lute. So your bog standard Henry VIII kind of lute that you would see in the movies, which has a great repertoire. I mean, that's really, in terms of classical plucked string music, the stuff written for that is as good as it gets. You know, the John Dowland and Vice and all that. Now, am I right? I remember years ago going to see a lute player called Rob McKillop, who turns out to have been your teacher once upon a time. Yeah. He was playing in Kerstorfen at the Dower House. Right. I don't know if you ever played there, but... Apparently, Rob unearthed a whole lot of early Scottish lute music and said that the lute was actually the instrument, the national instrument of lowland Scotland. Is that how you read it? Um, well, I mean, that's a big claim. I'm not sure I would be quite as broad strokes about it as that. Uh, but there I, is... You've got to take my memory into, <laughs> into account here. This is 25 years ago. Indeed. Um, I think... Yeah, I, I remember Rob saying these things. And I think he made a lot of bold statements, which is a very good thing to do if you want. You know, he's a natural PR guy, you know. And personally, um, I think that's a big claim. I don't think every shepherd... What, what, what one? What what part of that is a big a big claim? The, the idea that the, the lute was the national instrument of lowland Scotland or something. Okay. I mean, I don't think James Hogg was playing the lute while he was, you know herd any sheep, you know. But there is a lot of Scottish lute music out there that survived in manuscripts. And it's very unique because it it's already has that recognisably Scottish characteristics. You know, the, the melodies, the tunes. A lot of the earliest sources of Scottish folk tunes, something like The Flowers of the Forest, is in a lute manuscript, you know. So it is a great resource in terms of historical Scottish music and in terms of the a great repertoire source for the instrument itself. The Scottish contribution is to to the lute repertoire is, is great, yeah, so a lot. Is there quite a, a difference between, say, the lute music of the continent to English lute music to Scottish lute music, or is it all kind of much the same? Yeah, they're quite sort of unique na national styles. I mean, it's they bleed into each other. It's not like very as clear cut as all that. No, there are specific characteristics of different styles. So, like you're saying, the Scottish style, you've got this those nice kind of pentatonic melodies, usually quite simply harmonised. The English stuff tends to be very dense, contrapuntal kind of writing and very dark and melancholic and then the spanish again you've got spanish music which you again you sort of recognizably already has some of the recognizable features of what you think of as spanish music today and then the french sort of style of lute music again is is a you know a different different way of approaching playing the instrument it's very idiomatic to the lute you know you use more nasally more nasal, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Why do you think that is, Jamie? Why? Uh, how? How? Do, what does that reflect? These maybe slight but definable uh, yeah. differences. What? What's going on there historically? Do you think? Yeah, what's going on historically? Well, I think it's musicians reacting to what's going on around them. I guess so. If you're playing lute, if you're in Scotland playing the lute, you play on the lute what you hear, and. 
Uh, Scotland being a kind of slightly out of the way place in those days, not that well connected to everywhere else. It wasn't, and England as well, I mean, in a way, because we've got this island, a bit like, you know, you've got marsupials in Australia, you've got this unique kind of evolution. <laughs> and it's a bit like that, I think. you've got this unique kind of evolution where you're not so connected to the prevailing trends. And then occasionally somebody comes over and says, hey, this is how we do it in France. And then everyone kind of scurries to copy that for a little while, but then goes back to doing it their own way. So I think it's, if you think people traveled less widely in those days, but they did travel, but not as much. So you know, if you wanted to go to to France to hear a con- you know to hear the latest musical trends you're just talking you know, a good three month journey and no guarantee you'll get there alive so you know <laughs> exactly this is a problem you know <laughs> like Brexit yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> everything is a bit more compartmentalised so within a certain extent so people develop these unique sound worlds unique styles ways of playing which then they record and, and also a lot of if you think what we know of all that is just what people wrote down. We've no sound recordings, you know. We have no idea what music sounded like in those days. Okay, uh, I just wanted to pick up on something. I was moaning at students. You, you know, don't you look at that tab now. Don't you look at that tab. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that the earliest loop manuscripts are all in tab? Everything for plucked string instruments is in tab until about the mid to late 18th century. Wow. So it's only when you get to the period of kind of, yeah, late 18th century. So there's a guy called Moretti, who's an Italian soldier, basically, but who played the guitar. And he's credited with being the first person to really get guitar notation in, into staff notation working. Prior to that, Divise, all these big names in the classical guitar business, they're all in tab. The Bach lute suites are all written in tab. That's how they did it. And how do you feel about that from a performer point of view? Do you like to read from the tab or, or musical notation? I mean, do you really like to submerge yourself and be that lute player from 300 years? What's going on there? Yeah, I play from tab if it's lute, because that's how the music is notated. And the thing is, once you get, in a way, it's, I mean, tab is obviously, has its advantages. Now, the disadvantages are, obviously, it's not very good with rhythm. You know, it just tells you when to play the next note. That's kind of the disadvantage. But in terms of actually learning a piece, you learn it a lot faster. I mean, it has definite advantages. So I play all my lute repertoire uh, is done from tab. In terms of being, I'm very historical about it. I mean, obviously you don't, you can't really know. You can't go back in time. And I don't want to be sitting in a in tights and a codpiece dying of syphilis playing the lute. You know, you just... you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> moving swiftly on. <laughs> um, yeah. So the personally, I I don't know how, because you can never really know how it sounded. So I just try to make it pal- as as accessible to somebody listening now, you know, as you can be. Because I think we have no idea. Really, we don't. So I think it's as much a modern invention as anything else. We can just hopefully bring out something in the music that communicates to a modern audience and not in a kind of hey, nonny, nonny kind of jokey historical way but in a way that says actually people in those days wrote good music and you know let's appreciate their emotional emotional depths that they had and it's in the music and i think that brings you 
closer. You know, if you listen to the continuity, you know, of Scottish music, for example, from the 16th century to now, you know, there's you can connect in a way with what came before, but not in a silly way. So we're talking about lutes, Jamie. How many do you actually have? I've got about six lutes. Uh Um, Why do you need so many then? Well, because they're all slightly different. The the lute never stopped evolving throughout its history. And I don't have as many as there might be. And I know people who've got dozens, you know, literally, because it kept changing. And as we were saying about different parts of the world having slightly different styles of lute building and so forth. So... The different lutes I have have different numbers of strings, basically. So the earliest one has only, let me say only, has only got six pairs of strings, right? So it's basically just like a guitar, you know, like a 12-string guitar or something. You know? And then they keep adding strings to it. So I've got a six, a seven, an eight, and a ten course lutes. So that means you, they just keep adding more bass strings, to be honest. The basic six fret strings stay the same. They just add more bass notes because I think they want to get... They add more sonority and greater depth to the instrument. So that's what, what they do. I suppose we've got to remember, I know this is maybe stating the bleedingly obvious, but musical back then would be a lot quieter in a small setting than it is now, wouldn't it? So I suppose yeah. those extra strings might give it more depth. Give it more depth, yeah. Give you more range. I think at one time the lute became very popular for accompanying singing for accompanying singers, you know, the lute song stuff. And for that, obviously, it's nice to have a good strong bass register to give a good good um, foundation for the singer to sing with. Purely practical things. They're not being kind of just for the sake of it. It's, you know, you want to expand the range of the instrument. I think it's kind of funny that nowadays you have guitarists and we always want another guitar and <laughs> the, the other person in their life sometimes have to try and talk them round to that and, and justify it. And yeah. if we go back a couple of hundred or more years, exactly the same thing was happening probably. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but darling, you don't understand. This is a really special loot. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Have you have the latest thing, you know? So is loot music the vast majority of what you're playing just now, Jimmy? Um, not at the moment, actually. I mean, I did do a lot. I've did a good 15 years of solid loot playing. Then a few years ago, I got into 19th century guitar. And um, I was lucky enough to buy a guitar from about 1820. And then I started exploring that sort of Sor Giuliani stuff. And actually, that's kind of... And, I don't know if, I mean, I'd recorded a solo album on the romantic guitar stuff of Scottish music. Did you, I don't know if you came across that. It was um, romantic guitar music, you know, inspired by Scotland. Was that the Soldier's Tale or am I complete? Soldier's Return, it was called, yeah. Return, sorry. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's no. very interesting. Yeah, so that kind of, I haven't done that because I wanted to do something Scottish. But like you said, Rob had covered the loop. Area. So this was kind of where I could I find an, an opening, and I was amazed to see that like um, Fernando Sor and Giuliani had arranged these Scottish tunes for a guitar. Having done that, it sort of went from there. It wasn't on purpose or anything, but then I did a follow up to that album, and obviously once you've done one, and it was quite successful. I got a lot of reviews in that. But having done that then you have to kind of keep doing that. So uh, the next one I did was like women composers of 19th century guitar music. And so I've kind of been doing, that's what I've been doing a lot of for the last 
couple of years, really. This take it there's a lot of research is going into each of these releases. A lot is sort of making me sound a bit more um, more academic than I am. I mean, my research is purely practical. I don't claim to be doing original research. Other people have done this research, but they've obviously not been in a position to perform it, or they've not had the you know the opportunity to get it out there the way I've had that chance you know so i'm not claiming i find all this stuff from nowhere it's all kicking about and obviously the internet is a huge resource so much of this music you can just literally it's all that it's this amazing you know the swedish national library has the biggest sort of guitar 19th century guitar set up you can imagine and you can just literally find anything on there so i'm not uh research is slightly pushing the meaning of what i do but I certainly explore, I'd say, more than research. Surely research will come into it with some of these older instruments in, in terms of finding... The finding music. the music? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, a lot of people have done a lot of this kind of in-depth research. I wouldn't say I'm really... I mean, Rob, for example, did. I mean, I've not really dug into it to the extent that others have. I've just taken advantage of their work. Quite right, too. Now, I'm interested in some of the places you played. The Copenhagen Ren uh, Renaissance Music Festival. I've, I've been to Copenhagen a couple of times. A fantastic place. That sounds a, a fantastic festival. Tell me all about that one. They were into their early music. And, yeah, I did a recital in a beautiful church in the middle of Copenhagen with a singer. And we did a poll programme about... Oh, because, you know, um, the wife of James VI was Danish, Queen Anne of Denmark. So we did a whole programme of... Basically, based around her music that she would have known and heard. And yeah, it's a lovely, lovely festival. The problem I find is, you know, you do a gig somewhere, as you know, and you go, you fly there, you rehearse, you do the gig, <laughs> you go to sleep, you fly back. You know, you don't do much in the way of sightseeing. But actually, I did spend the weekend in Copenhagen and it was lovely. Yeah, it was, uh, I did a gig in Rome once and I was literally flown in, went to the gig, did the gig, went to yeah. sleep, and then taken right out of Rome again <laughs> that, was, that was it people always ask you know have you been to such and such a place and you're like yeah <laughs> but you've been that's it you know now looking at what you've done you, you've mm. done a lot of accompanying of uh, leading singers yeah um, is, does that go with the territory really Jamie with these instruments is it difficult to get an audience for the instruments in and of themselves I find a little bit yes if you can get latch on to a big name singer then they sell the tickets and you get a chance to play and you can do a few solo pieces in the concert i guess plucked strings have always had this kind of come in waves of popularity and i think historically we talk about the golden age of the guitar in the early 19th century when it's very popular and then there's another kind of golden age i think in like the 70s and 80s where you had like bream and williams and they were always on telly and you know you had a sort of and that's kind of not happening anymore so just looking at the orchestras you've played with um mm -hmm. a lot of work english yeah. national orchestra welsh national orchestra uh, opera yeah um, you've worked with scottish and irish and english chamber orchestras and north yeah. symphonia and many many more mm. how do you find all that is it quite ner nerve-wracking or or what <laughs> how does that go yeah i mean i find with the mo to me the most nerve-wracking thing is always like the first rehearsal because uh, in a way that like then you kind of you feel under pressure because everyone's like judging not judging you, you know what I mean but well, that's, they are yeah you know basically they're there saying right he's this guy is he any good you know and you're that's when you're on the spot once that's out of the way I usually find actually the concerts are usually fine because you know 
people like you just like go and you just do what you can you know and that's it that's the nerve-wracking bit for me isn't so much the audience or the venue or it's just that first rehearsal where you know that and these hardened orchestral guys they're to impress you've got to do a lot to impress them yeah they're pretty cynical Uh, how do you get on with the the conductor usually they're quite nice to me i find because often either they don't know very much about what i do so they're happy just to let me do my thing or my personal method is I just say yes to whatever they say and then do my own thing anyway and then they'll take credit for it because I know what works <laughs> you know what I mean so in terms of the battle do yeah. you do you um do you just basically lead and let him follow you or <laughs> <laughs> no well I find the best thing to do here's where it gets very technical but you know like guys if we play a a plucked instrument our sound is immediate right it happens there and then if you play a violin a bur- any of these orchestral instruments there's a delay because if they play when the or the conductor puts the downbeat they put their bow in the string it takes a second millisecond for the sound to come out so what happens is if you play with the conductor you'll be you'll sound ahead of everyone else so you can't actually go with the conductor you have to follow the violin bows that's my tip. Now, I want to move on to some other exciting areas that you've worked in, which is film soundtracks. And I would have thought oh, yeah. with so much period stuff coming out that you yeah. would, are you in, in increasing demand for these productions? I've done bits and pieces. I wouldn't say I've done a lot. I've done a few films. It seems to come in waves. You know, you'll do two or three and then nothing for five years and then do a couple. Yeah, I've done a few. Usually, it's a bit like with the orchestras, I find. It's just like either... You turn up and they haven't got a clue and they just say, we've got this scene, Can what kind of thing might you play? And you end up writing it for them, which has happened. Or you turn up and they've really micro-composed it and it's impossible. <laughs> they've written a piano part and you just can't play it. So it's... Um, have you got, I mean, if I tell you about my first ever film music experience, it's it's a total like. Let's hear it. It was right. Get this. You have, to, you have to have the whole setup, right? It was in Abbey Road Three, right? You know where Dark Side of the Moon was recorded and everything. Right. So get all to go and do this film, Abbey Road Three, whatever. Big Hollywood blockbuster, Paramount Studios. You know the whole. Ridley Scott was the director. What was the film? That was Robin Hood, you know, the yeah. Russell Crowe one? Yeah. Ten years ago, maybe. So I had a call to go and do that. And I was like, yeah, wow, exciting, exciting. Loads of money, you know. So I turn up and they put the music in front of me. And it's literally like in um, 120 beats per minute. Six, 12, 8, you know, really fast. Everything triplets all the way, da, 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 really fast, really like, oh my God. They set a click track, you know, clicking away really fast. Can you just tell the, the, the listeners what a click track is, Jamie? Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's basically like a metronome that you record to so that you're playing in time because they record all the instruments separately. So they all have to be playing in time with this click and then they stick them together. They mix it together. So basically, I was playing this piece and it was so hard and it just jumped around. It's the most unpredictable, annoying tune you can imagine. And it, it took me, I don't know how long, hours and hours, to, an hour and a bit to get it right. And I'm feeling really terrible about myself because I'm thinking I've heard all these stories about these great session musicians you just turn up and sight read everything and can and I'm just thinking oh my god I'm here in Abbey Road too and I'm totally wrecked I wish I was dead you know so eventually um, we finished that and I had to record it on the lute and that was eventually it took me about an hour and a bit and then I had to re- were you playing you weren't playing live with the orchestra were you pl- no no I just recorded yeah, just recording along to the clinic so I had to record my bit and then I had to record it again on guitar which was 
much easier actually because by then I knew it and then I had to record it <laughs> but then he said to me oh can you record it an octave lower <laughs> so I was like alright transpose it down an octave but eventually anyway after my three hour session was up and I was hating myself and wanting to die the composer guy comes up to me this New York guy and he says to me oh thanks very much for doing that man um Sorry we put you through that, but you're the last person of the day and no one else has got the tune right, so it had to be you. (laughs) (laughs) So you walked out with a feather in your cap. Indeed, because he'd had all these other instrumentalists, like violinists, everything, coming in to record this tune, and he said no one else had managed it, so you're the only person. So, <laughs> so, so let's let's get the load down. Was the tune any good, or was it just a lot of nonsense? No, I mean, it was a lot. It was supposed to be kind of... Is that a chase scene? Yeah, I don't know what. I mean, it's just, yeah, I think it was probably some kind of Robin Hood being chased by the Sheriff of Nottingham, kind of. But it's just, he said he wanted to write something completely random. We actually met in another life when you were very young and I was youngish. And yeah. we used to go up and down the road and I would um, annoy you all the way. And we would play at <laughs> Glen Eagles Hotel, uh, playing and being ignored. Rightly yeah. so. Um, but uh, you'd. You live in London now, and you've lived there for how long, Jimmy? Twenty-one years. So, so how, how know, is it that that's that's the epicenter of the, the the UK? So, I take it there's a lot more opportunities, and of course, you're closer to the continent. It just makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a conscious decision. I mean, I came and studied here at the Royal College of Music. That was the first stage, and I had no big plans to stick around. But once you're here and you, once you study somewhere, you know, you make contacts. You know, and like you say, it's the epicenter of things. So I'm, I've been lucky. I've been able to. There's so many theatres, there's so many opera houses, there's orchestras. I can I can travel elsewhere in the UK or to Europe, but there's just so much here already that I'd love to move back to Scotland. But at the moment, I I don't know what I'd do. I need to get a job. I think I'd have to have something because, or I'd just be travelling every week and I, I don't don't think I'd enjoy that so yeah it's it's tough it's tough to make a career as a musician outside of a big city and unless you're hugely famous you can deliver what you like you know but yeah you're right would you suggest to any young people out there that they should always move to a big city really I wouldn't want to tell anyone how to live it sort of worked out for me I think if you're going to go down that path then you're going to be hard pressed not to as to spend at least some time living somewhere where there's a big a big scene. Things are always evolving though, I mean changing. You know, and with the internet. I wanted to come on to that because I've talked to quite a few guys, done a few interviews with guys who've got internet cha- YouTube channels. Yeah, they're incredibly successful. The one thing that kind of comes through to me is that a lot of these guys are not actually players in the sense that you are, they're not out playing. They're actually almost chained to creating mm-hmm. videos for the internet. Yeah. Having said that, do you have an inter uh, YouTube channel? Would you, and if you don't, would you consider one? Because it's certainly a different what you're doing. Yeah, no, I do have one. I remember I've posted on it intermittently. I find it, it's quite a time-consuming process. And I mean, I do find it useful. And actually nowadays... It's kind of expected that you have one. And I know people, recently I got booked to do some work and they said, oh, can you send us some, can you show us some videos? You know, send us your YouTube. So it's, and your website, I mean, all these things you you can't really do without. So yeah, I definitely have one. I don't make any money off it. And I put things on it intermittently when I've got time or inclination. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've never, I'm slightly too old to have grown up with it. 
Um, so it's not something I kind of take for granted in a way. And now I think a lot of people as well, if you were in it at the beginning, 10, 12 years ago, I've got a colleague who, classical guitarist, who got in right in the beginning and now his channel's huge because he's right there and he posts stuff on it weekly maybe. And then, you know, he's able to exploit that. But now there's so much on there as well. I don't know how you, how do you get noticed? That's the other thing. That's a very good question. Now, you've got three albums out? I've got, is it three? I've got three solo ones or three, yeah, three solo ones. Returns, uh, yeah. Soros Harmonicus and That's... La Donna El uh, Chitara. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, La Donna El Chitara. Oh, yeah, sorry, yes, yes. I'm <laughs> teaching a Spanish guy right now. I need him right here, right now. <laughs> uh, have you got any plans for recordings coming up? Well, uh, yeah, another, I'm doing the research, the exploration at the moment for another, to follow up to the Lady Guitarists one, which will be um, Eastern European, late 19th century Eastern European guitar music, which obviously nobody has recorded very much of. Was Ravel not going around souping up all that stuff? Who's that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, guys like Glinka, you know, the Russian composer, he was, was connected to all this. I mean, so there's quite a big scene that's not really... I think everything in the classical guitar business, everything got swept under by Segovia, you know, and the guitar became very much a Spanish thing, symbol of Spain. But actually, throughout that period, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, there's a huge guitar playing scene in Eastern Europe, building on what went before, you know, Viennese style. And they built their own kind of guitars, and they had this own kind of unique... Um, really interesting style of completely different. You know, it's not doesn't sound like flamenco at all. It's sort of a whole other thing. It's yeah, I think that's my next next mission really is to dig out some of that and put together a program and record it. The instruments you play are really visually stunning. Mm-hmm. It just looks really cool. Do you, yeah. do you feel this early music? How did you before we started the interview? You mm. what was the the phrase you used for it um, early historically informed performance practice that's the one yeah do, do you think it's becoming more popular i think it's becoming more accepted i don't know if it's at one time it was kind of rebellious to do this and you know there was a kind of mainstream that this was not part of i think as time's gone on it's kind of become accepted certainly in the classical music business but also like i say i think in the idea of authenticity is you know, across all across all genres really. You get it in in sort of folk music and jazz and whatever. I think you you have this idea that you know you can. I've heard like Wynton Marsalis or something. You know, recreating a certain style of jazz from the past. You know, re- recreating it. So that's that's a sort of aesthetic that's across the board really. And it's is it, is it popular? I think it's more accepted. It's more standard and. And nowadays, in a way, you'd be hard-pressed to find an orchestra or something not doing it, you know? I think it's become such a commonplace that it's almost taken for granted. Do you only play music from way back, Jamie, or do you allow yourself to play in other... When I, when I say more modern, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't mean, yeah. No, I play contem- I've played contemporary classical stuff for old instruments. I played the odd uh, musical, you know, just rhythm guitar and stuff like that. So I, I'm happy to turn my hand to anything, really. And I'm quite happy to, you know, explore. I, to me, it's all music. I'm not especially snobby about it. And the more 
So the more experience I get, the older I get, the more I appreciate that none of it's easy, you know? <laughs> you can't, uh, maybe at one time when I was a young, when you knew me as a young kind of classical music person, I possibly had this slightly look down mentality to other you know, pop music or whatever. But actually, nowadays I look down and I think, well, actually, none of this is easy to do. You know, it's not easy to play rock music or whatever. So I'm happy to have a go at anything and expand my horizons and, you know, just kind of enjoy playing it. Just to kind of end on, I, I did notice that you, you also teach. So are you, t- are you teaching people to play the lute and these other instruments? And maybe you could tell us where you've taught, because I think that'd be quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, I teach fairly regularly in Glasgow at the Conservatoire, so I come up every couple of weeks to do lessons there, teaching, yeah, lute, early plucked instruments, basically, lute, the orbital, broke guitar, um, and also a bit of lecturing on historical stuff, rep- historical repertoire. I've taught a little bit of the Royal College of Music, the Royal Northern as well, and the Royal Welsh. So I've kind of been around all the... Most of the UK can sort of classical institutions. Um, been to Russia to teach. Wow! In... Tell, tell us about that. That sounds exciting. Well, I went to. It wasn't Moscow. It was Rostov, and I went there because they. Rostov on Don. That's the one. Uh, I went there and. So do you speak Russian? No, God, no. I Wow! Impressed, man. How did you do that? I, I did. I did Russian at school, but I can only remember uh, bits uh, like Etasuda, which has <laughs> like, come here. <laughs> not not very useful if you need an ice cream or something. <laughs> Kick de la, yeah. Kick de la, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so did they have a, a translator there for you, Jamie? I take it, yeah. They translator all the time, but literally they've no they've no tradition of music before about 1800 because it was you know literally a sort of feudal system they had and the music for them begins with you know Tchaikovsky and all that so it was getting helping them to play and it wasn't like pluckers per se I did some work with the guitarists but it was all like string orchestras and stuff just working on Vivaldi and Bach stuff like that which they've just no tradition of playing. Good reception? Yeah they loved it I think they seemed they're very um it's very different. The students are very kind of old school, you know, they're very respectful, you know, not like here, you know, they call you sir and they treat you like you know something. <laughs> so it's great. <laughs> the good old days. Thank you very much for taking the time uh, to speak with me t- today. It's been fantastic. I'm going to put lots of these pictures, if you don't mind, up and videos sure. yeah, on, please. on the website and, and get it out there. If people were interested in getting into loot or um, mm. early music for all of these instruments do you have any advice on what they should be listening to to ease them into it obviously if you're really into, into the lute then you go and you listen to the John Dowland Vice the big names to get you going you know so the English stuff obviously there's if you're inclined you know the Scottish kind of lute music is a little bit of an aside it's not the core thing but that's really attractive and that's a good way to get started because some of it's not so difficult to play you know but it's attractive and nice music so that's an avenue you can go down so listening to dialand is probably a great place to start and then if you want to start playing then you know there's so much material of the time that you can explore if you want to get into playing the theorbo i think i'd probably see a therapist first just to make sure come on jimmy how much do one of those things cost well, I got mine quite cheaply, I have to say. But if you want one made, they're about 6,000 quid, maybe. Good grief. 
Well, I mean, what was the case cost? The case was 260 when I bought one. They might be a bit, maybe near 400 now, because that's about 10 years ago. If you think how much uh, violin costs, how much a cello costs, how much uh, stringed instruments are expensive. One last question I've got for you. You see, when you're going abroad, yeah. how do you get the instruments over without having a complete paddy all the way on the flight? Do you get a steel box or something, a flight case? Or what do you do? For which? For the Theorbo? Yeah, have you ever played that um, out with the UK? I have. It's got, it gets worse and worse, basically. Years ago, I just used to take it on and it fits in a seat. So I just take it on, you buy a seat, the Theorbo goes in the seat. Nowadays, they're a bit iffy about that. I have... Eurostar, I remember playing in Austria and getting the train to Austria and the train back. And then once you like this, uh, I went to Switzerland and actually I borrowed a folding one. So you can get ones which have a hinge in the neck and it kind of folds over. So I, I took that and again had a seat bought for it. But oh, flying is just a nightmare. It's just, it's just frightening. Well, Jamie, thanks ever so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, pleasure catching up with you again after all these years. After yeah. spying on you and all your works on Facebook and, and YouTube. Um, so hopefully we're gonna I'll see you in concert at some point. That would be great. Yeah, we'll do. Take care of yourself. Cheers. Well that's us for another episode. I hope you enjoyed that listening to Jamie talk about his career, the many instruments he has, and uh, well worth having a look at the videos that are on the GMI guitar website that accompany this podcast. Coming up soon will be a completely different theme altogether. So all that remains for me to say, as always, is thank you for listening. It's been me, Jed Brocky, talking to Jamie Akers. Hopefully I will have your company on the next podcast. Until then, bye for now. Bye.